key to Romans chapter 8, and there's a lot of different ways we could title this or, or define it or describe it. It's, uh, it's the chapter that identifies our victory over the flesh. It uh, tells us about Christ in us. It tells us about the Holy Spirit within us. Uh, any or all of those things are accurate and appropriate uh, to describe the 8th chapter of Romans, but it really depends, in my opinion, on the understanding of chapters 5, 6, and 7. I've read, uh, oh, I'm guessing close to 100 different commentaries on uh, different parts of the book of Romans, and, uh, and whenever I find one, I always turn to chapter 8 first and foremost to find out if it's going to be one that I'm interested in. And of, of, uh, of all the commentaries that I've read and all the things that, uh, uh, that I've had access to over the years uh, regarding Romans chapter 8, it seems to me that those commentators that do not have an understanding of chapters 5, 6, and 7 go into spiritual contortions or doctrinal contortions to try to make Romans chapter 8 fit whatever they think um, about God or think that, uh, that Paul is trying to get across. So if you'll allow me, I'm going to recap just very briefly in less than a minute or two. Romans 5, 6, and 7. Romans chapter 5. These are foundational truths, things that we need to know to understand what he's trying to get across in chapter 8. Chapter 5 tells us that sin entered in by Adam. Sin entered into the world and spiritual death came upon all men through Adam. It, it identifies our relationship with sin because of Adam. Chapter 6 tells us that Jesus ended that relationship by his sacrifice. It goes on to tell us in chapter 6 that he ended our relationship not only with death, but also with the law. Not just the law of Moses, but any law, any commandment. Chapter 7 tells us further about that ended relationship with death, sin, and the law. And then Paul says that he finds out, even though that he's in Christ Jesus, even though that he's made Jesus the Lord of his life, he still has a struggle with his flesh. Now, the way that Paul describes the, the struggle that he has with his flesh, it's almost like he's surprised to realize it. And on one hand, it would seem to, to make sense to our natural way of thinking that if we're saved, really saved, of course, there's no way you can be not really saved. If you're saved, you're really saved. But we seem to think of it in those terms. If we're really saved, then we're going to, have, we're going to be able to overcome and conquer the flesh. Well, Paul seemed to have that same struggle. And Paul discovered certain things that enabled him to win that struggle. One of the things he understood and came to understand was that the sin, the desire to sin that was still present in his flesh, that was there even before he found Jesus, and still there after he was made a new creature in Christ Jesus, was not the real him. He came to find out that the real him that wanted to serve God was being held captive by the body that wanted to do the things that are wrong. He said, the body, there's still a law of sin that's operating in my flesh, in my members. It's not me. It's not what I want to do from the inside. From the inside, I serve with the law of God. From the inside, the inner man wants to delight in the things of God. But the outer man pulls me into the wrong way. So he says, he concludes chapter 7 by saying, oh, wretched man that I am. Now, folks, you need to understand this. If you do not come to understand the deliverance, the means of deliverance over the flesh in chapter 8, you will be the same wretched man, the same wretched Christian that Paul was. It is the key to understanding righteousness. I want to let that sink in. It is the key to understanding righteousness. And this is the number one thing that the devil uses in the unrenewed minds of the Christian to bring him under condemnation, to keep him under condemnation, to keep him from growing in the knowledge of the word and to keep him from developing and growing spiritually. So what happened? 
Well, when God put Adam and Eve on the earth and Adam and Eve fell in the Garden of Eden, it says that he, his sin, Adam's sin, trapped us all. Adam died spiritually. What does that mean? That means his spirit became a prisoner of his body. His spirit became a prisoner of his body. But Jesus came to make us new creatures in Christ Jesus. We are, all things are made new. Old things pass away and all things are made new, meaning we become a new person spiritually. Well, we would think, we'd like to think, that being made a new creature in Christ Jesus means we don't have any more trouble with the flesh. But that's the struggle that Paul found. I still have the same struggle with the flesh that I had before. Is the blood of Jesus not sufficient to deliver me from the desires, the evil desires, and the experience of sin in my flesh? He comes to the realization that he needs something, some power outside of himself, someone to deliver him from the body of this death. Who is that going to be? He concludes chapter 7 by saying, I found out it was Jesus. Now, what did Paul find out? He already knows he's saved. So it's not salvation, a knowledge of salvation that, he, that, that sets him free. And please realize, Paul did get free. This same Paul that talks about the struggle that he had with his flesh in chapter 7 of Romans is the one that says, I keep my body under. He said, all things are lawful unto me, but not expedient. And I won't do anything that puts me under the power of anything or anyone else. Sounds like he's got control. He said, I bring my, or keep my body under. In other words, I don't let my body do what it wants to do, lest after having preached to others, I myself might be a castaway. Sounds like he's got control. What did he find out that gained him or, or enabled him to gain that control over his flesh? He found out not just that he was in Christ, but that Christ was in him. And that's what chapter 8 is about. Verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Notice the last part. If you're reading from the King James said, Who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. That is not there in the original text. It is there in verse 4. But not in verse 1. Why is it put up in verse 1 by the translators? The only explanation I have, and this is just a guess, is that verse 1 was without the phrase that deals with what they thought was behavior, was too much for them to accept. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. I want you to understand something, folks. Paul's whole point has not been behavior. He's talked about his struggle with behavior. But remember, he ends chapter 7 by saying, who's going to deliver me from this? Who's going to deliver me from this struggle? And his answer is Jesus. So he's talking position. He's not talking behavior. If this is about behavior, then only those who learn to conquer their flesh first, can escape guilt and condemnation of sin. That means some Christians are going to be condemned and other Christians are not. Is that the way it works? No, it's not. He says, there is therefore now, because I'm in Christ Jesus, there is therefore now no condemnation. No condemnation. The word condemnation means guilt. It means the sentence of guilt. There is no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Can I ask you a question? How long are you planning to be in Christ Jesus? Any of you want out? Then he's talking about an eternal position. That means there is not, from the time that you made Jesus the Lord of your life, there is no condemnation, there is no guilt. It's already been sentenced. It's already been taken care of for you by the sacrifice of Jesus himself, the blood of Jesus that was shed. That means there's no condemnation for you then. There's been no condemnation for you since. And there never will be any condemnation for you. 
that means it's impossible for you to be guilty. Yeah, but, 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 but. What if we do wrong? He's going to cover that. It doesn't change the fact. And the fact is there is therefore, because of Jesus, because not only are you in Christ, but Christ is in you, there is therefore now no. Everybody say no. How much does that mean? None. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Now, how is that possible? Verse 2. For the law, there's a law in in play. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. What did Paul find? He found out that there's a spiritual law because he's in Christ Jesus. He didn't know that before. But the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set him free. And you too, from the law of sin and death. Now, what is the law of sin and death that he's talking about? He's not saying that we've just been uh, delivered from sin. He covered that in previous chapters. What law of sin and death is he talking about? He's talking about the law of sin that was in his flesh. That was causing his struggle in chapter 7. He's saying, I found that there's a, there's a benefit to being in Christ Jesus that sets me free from this sin uh, experience in my flesh that wants to do contrary to what my spirit wants to do. And that's the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. In other words, he's saying, I found out Christ is in me. Folks, you need to understand something. I think it's Galatians 2.20. But even if I've got the reference wrong, you'll recognize it when I quote it. The mantra, the motto of Paul's life is, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That is exactly what Paul is teaching here. And the fact that we don't have that other than just a mention of it in the other letters that Paul wrote tells me that he didn't have a chance uh, because he had not been to Rome before. He's teaching them the same things that he's taught in every other church he's been to. Every other church he's established. Thank God he hadn't been to Rome yet. Or else we might not have the great truths that we have revealed to us in the book of Romans. It occurred to me one day that God kept him from going to Rome. So we'd have a, uh, um, an outline of his doctrine. Of the revelation that Jesus gave to him. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free. From the law of sin and death. There is something that resides in you. That has already set you free. From the wrongdoing of your flesh. That you keep tripping over day after day after day after day after day. But if you don't know it. You'll never take advantage of it. And walk in victory. Verse 3. For what the law could not do. Well, what couldn't the law do? The law couldn't make you righteous. Why? Because you couldn't keep it. Why couldn't you keep it? Because your history was in Adam. Your spirit. You were spiritually dead. Just like Adam became spiritually dead. Your spirit was held captive by its flesh. Your spirit is no longer a prisoner of your flesh. It's been made alive unto God. Paul is saying, once I found these things out, my spirit became the dominant factor, not my flesh. It set me free. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do and that it was weak through the flesh... In other words, that's just the inability of the individual to do what you might want to do from the inside or what you know God has commanded. God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Doesn't say he had sinful flesh, but he was in the same likeness of sinful flesh. He bypassed the sin that came upon all men because of the virgin birth or by the virgin birth. 
But God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, notice this phrase, condemned sin in the flesh. That means he passed judgment on it once and for all. Now, folks, you need to realize something. Paul uses the phrase or several different phrases, several different words that conjure up the idea that God is the supreme judge of the universe. Imagine a courtroom where God sits on the judges in the judge's seat. There is no higher court. And so when God passes sentence on something, that's the end of the story. There is no appeals court to go to. There is no retrying a case because of new evidence. When God executes his command of judgment, sentence is then carried out based upon his judgment. And that's exactly what happened to sin and spiritual death. God, because of Jesus' actions on the cross, the sacrifice that he made, pronounced sin in the flesh dead. At least dead to you. And he executed judgment upon it. Now, since God has already done that, since the highest court in the universe, the highest court that could ever be, the highest officer, God is the judge, supreme judge, has already executed judgment or passed judgment and then executed the sentence upon that which he judged, which was sin in the flesh, why would we want to dig it up and try to make another case? It's impossible. Even if the devil tries to use your unrenewed mind and wrong thinking to bring it back up, it's already been passed judgment upon. Judgment has been passed upon it. Jesus condemned sin in the flesh. He condemned sin in the flesh. What does that mean? That means he once and for all did something about spiritual death. That means once and for all he did something about the sin desires that are in your body. It's not up to you as to whether or not you yield to your flesh, as to whether or not sin in your flesh has been condemned. It has been condemned. And that means there is nothing, no matter what you do, no matter what you don't do, whether it's a sin of commission or sin of omission, there's nothing you can do that brings about a judgment of guilt upon you. It's impossible. Now, folks, if you just stop there, then you can well understand why Paul was spoken of in many places throughout the world of his day as preaching, it doesn't matter what you do, you might as well sin all you want to. Because if you just stop there, that's what it sounds like. But Paul didn't stop there. Jesus, once and for all, through his action, condemned sin in the flesh. It was the first time that God was able to deal with sin apart from man. And he did it through Jesus. That's why it's not about behavior. It's about what Jesus did. It's about position in Christ. Verse 4, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. Now, righteousness, the law was righteous. Paul went through a, a, a long discourse about that. The law is not sinful. The law was righteous. But it became sin unto me because I was unable to keep it. But God condemned sin in the flesh through the work of Jesus so that the, law, the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. In other words, here's the way that we can live in a righteous manner. That might be fulfilled in us. How? Who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. Who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. Paul introduces something that he had not found out in chapter 7. Talking about his own experience. You know what I mean by that, don't you? I don't mean that he didn't know this when he wrote chapter 7. I mean he didn't know this when he describes the things that was the, the struggle that he was going through in chapter 7. I hope you understand what I mean. 
What did he find out? He found out that his spirit was not prisoner to his flesh. Why is he having a struggle in chapter 7? Why do Christians struggle? Because they don't know they have power to overcome the flesh. Paul found out we do. What is that power in us that helps us overcome our flesh? Christ in you, the hope of glory. He goes on in verse 5. Now, verses 5 through 8 are in parentheses, and it might do you, do you well to, to put those in parentheses in your Bible because he is describing a side note about walking in the flesh versus walking in the Spirit. So he says in verse 5, For they that are after the flesh do mind. The word mind means to be occupied with. Those that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh. What that means is, think about the unsaved. The unsaved spirit, the spirit of the unsaved man or woman, is held in bondage to his, to his, uh, his flesh, his body. Now, there's no struggle for him because he's not trying to do right from the inside. His body wants to do the wrong thing, and so he, his spirit yields to it. And he does the wrong thing. But what it means is that man's spirit, the unsaved spirit, is occupied. All of his attention are for the things of the flesh. Why? Because that's all he cares about is him. That's what he means when it says the minding of the flesh. It's almost like the spirit minds or obeys the body. They that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the spirit are occupied by the Spirit, do mind the things of the Spirit. Now, what in, what's the only thing that can cause somebody to become occupied or interested or give attention to the things of the Spirit? Salvation. So he's saying the unsaved are occupied with the things of the flesh, the things that are the enemy of God. The saved, no matter how carnal they may be, no matter how uh, much of a baby Christian they may be, no matter how, many, how body ruled they may be, Those that are in the Spirit are occupied with things of the Spirit. Why? Because they're in Christ Jesus. Even if they're baby Christians. Even if they're carnal Christians. Carnal meaning body ruled. For to be carnally minded, occupied, is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, that means enemy, is God's enemy, for it is not subject to the law of God, notice this phrase, neither indeed can be. Why? Because they're unsaved. So then, verse 8, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, a lot of times people take this phrase in the flesh and they think that Paul is talking about whether or not you're doing good things or wrong things with your body. He thinks, many people think, many Christians think that Paul is talking about behavior rather than position. And he's not. He hadn't started talking about position, hadn't started talking about behavior yet. He's still talking position. And even the translators didn't understand this. Apparently. Because they tried to put it up in verse 1. What is he saying? He's saying there's two classes of people, those that are in the flesh and those that are in the spirit. Those that are in the flesh are unsaved. Those that are in the spirit are those that are in Christ Jesus. He had, obviously, he hadn't started talking about uh, behavior yet. He's got to be talking about position. Notice in verse 9, he tells us, points this out, he said, but you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit if, everybody say if. Here's the qualifier. Here's what puts a person in the spirit rather than in the flesh. If so be that the spirit of God dwell in you. 
Now, the devil will try to twist things up in people's minds, and a lot of denomination, religious groups, and so forth will help them out by saying, well, the Spirit of God only dwells in you if you're living right. That's not what he's saying. He's saying if the Spirit of God dwells in you, then you're not in the flesh. Now, what does it mean for the Spirit of God to dwell in you? Notice he finishes in verse 9, the last part of verse 9. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. In other words, he's saying you're not in the flesh if, if Jesus lives in your heart. You're not in the flesh if you're in Christ Jesus. Doesn't mean you may not be struggling with your flesh. But as far as God is concerned, your position is in Christ or in the Spirit. Those are interchangeable terms. In Christ means in the Spirit. No matter how carnal a Christian you might be, no matter how many times you may be sinning and stumbling over your flesh from day to day or week to week, if you're in Christ Jesus, as far as God is concerned, because of the position that being in Christ Jesus puts you in, you are not in the flesh. You're in the spirit. Now, what benefit does that bring us? Well, he's going to describe a little bit more. Verse 10, if in, and if Christ be in you, the body is dead. Everybody say, my body's dead. It doesn't feel dead, does it? It doesn't act like it's dead, does it? We'd like for it to be dead to sin. But it doesn't want to operate that way. But notice what your position in Christ has caused. Notice what you making Jesus the Lord of your life has created in you and for you. And if you be Christ or if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin. The body is dead because of sin. It's dead to doing the right things. It's dead to doing the things of God. It's still the enemy of God just like it was before you were saved. But your body is dead because of sin. It's dead to the things of God. But... The spirit is life because of righteousness. Who's righteous? Everybody in Christ Jesus. Who's living righteously? Well, that's another issue. But there's a big difference between who you are and what you may be living like. The Bible talks about in the Old Testament how Nebuchadnezzar lost his head for a while. Went out of his mind for a while and was out in the, in the, the fields eating grass like a uh, cow and doing all kinds of crazy things. That didn't keep him from being a human being. He wasn't living like one, but he still was one. That's what the Bible is saying, and that's what Paul found out. And remember, Paul's first discovery was the desire in my flesh is not me. Neither is the desire in your flesh to do the wrong things you Why? Because you, the real you, the man on the inside, is in Christ Jesus. Therefore, you are righteous. And even though your body is dead to the things of God or dead to a desire for the things of God because of sin, you are one with God. And you can't change that by doing the wrong thing, folks. Verse 11, but if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you. Now, again, he's not talking about if you're really walking right with God and if you're spiritually mature and, and, and the Holy Ghost is taking possession of you. He's not talking about any of those things. He's talking about what you have by the spirit of God because Jesus died for you and you made him the Lord of your life. He's talking position. But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken that means to make alive your mortal bodies. Now he's going to tell us how Christ in us benefits us. Now he's going to tell us how he found out 
how to overcome the struggle that he was having in his flesh. He found out that the Spirit of God that is made ours because we are in Christ Jesus is the delivering agent. Notice he equates the Spirit of of, uh, God in verse 9 with the Spirit of Christ. He's talking the same thing. He said, I've found out now that if the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you and he dwells in everybody that's made Jesus the Lord of their lives, he'll quicken your mortal body. He'll make alive your mortal body. You mean that mortal body that was dead because of sin? Yeah. Because the Spirit is greater than the power of your flesh. That's what he found out. If the Spirit of him that raised up Christ from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his Spirit that dwells in you. Therefore, brethren, therefore, brethren, therefore, brethren. In other words, this is what this means. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh. We have no debt. We have no bond. We have no obligation to live according to the desires of our flesh. You mean we don't have to? That's exactly what he's saying. The same guy that was struggling in verse, uh, in chapter 7 saying, oh, wretched man, who's going to deliver me from the body of this death? He found out that the one that would deliver him from the body of this death was already on the inside of him. He just wasn't taking advantage of the power that he had. And folks, if that's true for Paul, that's true for every other believer. Every one of us have the ability to live above the desires of our flesh by his spirit that dwells in us. Now, that's the key. Because in verse in chapter 7, Paul was just as much a Christian as he is in chapter 8. Paul, under struggle between his spirit and his flesh, was just as saved as he was when he learned how to overcome his flesh and keep his body under. What did he learn that enabled him to give him victory? What was it that enabled him to come to the place of victory where before he was struggling, just as saved, just as much in love with Jesus as before? Now... What has he found out? What has he discovered? What is he utilizing that enables him to walk in victory? The Spirit of God. Before, he wasn't counting on the power of God within him to do anything. Now, he's found out that's the only power that's enabled me or would enable me or anybody else to overcome the desire of the flesh. Let me interrupt this for just a minute and take a little side journey. What does the Holy Ghost in you mean to you? For some, it means they're going to go to heaven. Well, thank God for that. For others, it means I can talk in tongues. Well, thank God for that. But how many of us rely on the Holy Ghost from day to day to be the power of God to quicken our mortal bodies? Most of the time, we look at verse uh, chapter 8, verse 11, just as a healing scripture. If we're dealing with sickness or disease, then we're looking for the Holy Ghost to quicken or make alive our mortal bodies from sickness or disease. And thank God he does. But that's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about make the dead body because of sin alive unto God. Now, that doesn't mean it does away with the enmity of the flesh or it does away with the enmity toward God. Your flesh will always want to do the wrong thing. And it's important for you to accept that. If you think that being spiritual means you're never going to have any trouble with your body, Paul never got there. And if he never got there, we might as well give up. 
Your body is always going to want to do the wrong thing. The experience of sin will be in your flesh until Jesus comes back and you get a redeemed body. And he's going to talk a lot about that in the next few verses. So it's important for you to realize that. Don't get trapped up in the devil's lie by, by thinking that, well, if I was spiritual enough, I wouldn't have any trouble with my flesh. You're always going to have trouble with your flesh because your flesh is not redeemed. But it can be quickened. It can be quickened by the Spirit of God within you if you'll learn who he is on the inside and learn to rely on the power that he provides for you. That's what he's saying. If the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he that raised Jesus up from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwells in you. Therefore, brethren, that means people that are saved like Paul, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh. For if you live, now he's talking behavior. For if you live after the flesh, you shall die. That's a real poor translation. Because how can a Christian die? He can't be talking about physical death because we're going to die physically unless Jesus, unless we're alive when Jesus comes back anyway. The Bible says it's appointed unto man wants to die. The only thing that's going to cause us to miss that appointment is Jesus coming back before we do. So what dying is he talking about? Well, he can't be talking about spiritual death. Because if spiritual death was dependent on behavior, then what good was the blood of Jesus? So if he's not talking about spiritual death, and if he's not talking about physical death, what death is he talking about? One translation says it this way, and I think it's helpful to look at it like this. For if you live after the flesh, you shall produce deeds of death or doings of death. But if you through the Spirit do mortify the deeds or the doings of the body, you shall live. He's not talking about spiritual life. He's talking about bringing forth fruits unto righteousness. In other words, he's saying there's no condemnation no matter what you do. Because sin, the the judgment has been passed upon sin. And the sentence has been executed. Once and for all. It's not about guilt or innocence. It's about what do we do with our bodies. It's about do we bring forth fruits unto righteousness. Now that we're in Christ and the spirit of God. The power of God. And notice he identifies the power that's in uh, that the Holy Ghost provides for us, it's the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. I don't know how you get any better power or greater power than that. It's the power that raised Jesus from the dead. If you learn to utilize that power that's already within you because you're in Christ Jesus, and again, he's not talking about being baptized in the Holy Ghost. He's talking about a position in Christ. Although, in Paul's day, there wasn't a distinction between being saved and filled with the Spirit. Everybody was expected to get all of God you could. I don't know if Paul ever foresaw the day that we live in where people argue about should we get the Holy Ghost, should we be filled with the Holy Ghost and speak with other tongues or not. My goodness, if it's available, why wouldn't we want it? Thank God it's available. But Paul is talking about a relationship with God because of position in Christ. For if you live after the flesh... You shall produce fruits of death. But if you through the Spirit, through the Spirit, through the Spirit, by the Holy Ghost power, mortify or put to deed the doings of the body, you shall live. You shall produce fruits of righteousness. For 
Verse 14, here's the context of a great scriptures about being led by the Holy Ghost. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. The Old Testament law, our relationship was broken with every law, not just the law of Moses, but the, uh, any other rules or commandments with God. The Old Testament law, the substitute for the Old Testament law, was walking in the Spirit. They were commanded to keep the law or else. That substitution has been made by something that's gentle, pleasing unto God, and easy enough for us to do, and that is to be led by the Holy Spirit. For if you are led by the Holy Spirit, as many as you are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. This word sons means adult sons. It doesn't mean child. It means adult sons. In other words, he's saying a part of spiritual development is to allow the Holy Ghost, the power of the Holy Ghost, to lead you to produce fruits of righteousness. Now what is Paul saying? He's saying it's impossible to live a holy life. Without having a controlled body. Those two things just don't mix. You can't have a holy life. Unless you control your body. Now that doesn't mean you're not in Christ. You are in Christ. Because of the work that Jesus did. And your acceptance thereof. But if you're going to live a holy life. It's going to be a spirit led life. It's going to be a body-controlled life. And that's what Paul talks about. In uh, That's the context that Paul is talking about being led by the Spirit. He's talking about a body-controlled life as opposed to a body-ruled life. He identifies carnal Christians as body-ruled. Well, then what's a spiritual Christian? Spirit-ruled or spirit-led. Those would be interchangeable terms too. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God, meaning adult sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear. Now, what's he talking about? Well, when Israel received the law, they received a spirit of bondage because they now have a law they can't keep. And what did that bondage result in? Fear, because they knew they weren't right before God. Now, how many Christians do you know of? I hope you don't fall into this category. But how many Christians do you know of that live in fear knowing you don't measure up to God? There's only one way that that's possible, and that is that you don't know that there's no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus sets you free from ever thinking that God's mad at you for anything or any reason. Paul's going to say in a little bit further on, what is it, verse, uh, verse 31, if literally since God before us, who can be against us? That's the whole crux of this, folks. There's no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of the spirit, law of sin and death. Because of that, God is for you in every way, in every aspect, and in every situation. He can't be against you. Now, you can take sides against him. But even that doesn't put him on the other side. He's still for you. And the Holy Spirit will lead you back to where you're on his side. For you have not received again the spirit of a bondage. You have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. What's he saying? He's saying we're in a relationship with God where he is now our father. He wasn't before we were born again. What does Abba, Father mean? Well, it means the same thing Jesus said. My father and I are one. 
He said, the deeds that I do, I do what my Father shows me to do. It's my Father in me that's doing them. In the same way, when we're led by the Spirit, the things that we do, the actions of our flesh, are the works of God in or through us. It's not a hard thing. It's not a do-it-or-else thing. It's a gentle leading. It's the Holy Ghost trying to show us. Here's how you tap into the power of God. Now, what does that mean? Well, what is the power of God? Isn't it because it's divine power? Does that mean it's infinite? Doesn't that mean it's unending? Doesn't that mean by definition, therefore, that whatever power you need to overcome whatever's in your flesh, I don't care if it's the greatest addiction that there is known to man, the power of God has to be available for you to overcome it. I don't care how long you've been involved in something. I don't care how deeply entrenched you are in something. The power of God has to be available for you to overcome it. Let these things sink down into your spirit. Become aware of these things and you can break anything that you think has got you bound. And you don't need one more thing than what you've already got to do it. So many times people are praying for some external power to come down upon them from heaven to enable them to walk in freedom. The power you need is already inside of you. It's already there. Verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. What is the first thing the Bible says the Holy Ghost will lead you to know? That you are the children of God. What does that mean? Well, he's talking relationship, but more than that, he's talking about God being on your side. He's going back to the same theme that he started with in verse 1. There's no condemnation to you. But what if I'm doing the wrong thing? What if I keep doing the wrong thing over and over again? That means you're learning how to be led by the Spirit out of it. That's all it means. It doesn't mean God's mad at you. After you do something wrong for the hundredth time or the thousandth time, then God says, okay, I've hit my limit. Too bad for you. God has no limit because it's not based on behavior. It's because you're in Christ that there's no condemnation to you and never will be. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Not going to be, but are. And if children, now folks, you've got to understand something. If the Holy Ghost had not impressed Paul to write this, if this is not some part of the revelation that Jesus gave to Paul, there is no way that any human being on earth would have the gall to write this. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs. Joint means equal. Joint heirs with Christ. What is he saying? He's saying everything that belongs to Jesus as being raised, to the, seated and, raised and seated at the right hand of God, given a name in heaven that's above every other name, and everything that belongs to him because of that, all power that has been given unto him in heaven and earth, it means you're a joint and co-equal heir of that power and those possessions. Now the question is, are you going to get to heaven before you take advantage of any of it? That's the real issue. Because he's talking about being led by the Spirit here to overcome the desires of the flesh to produce life or fruits of righteousness. So notice what he says. He adds on to this, join heirs with Christ if, conditional, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. 
Now, what is he talking about? He's talking about here's how you become a joint heir with Christ. Here's how Paul came to the place where he stopped struggling over his flesh, saying the things I want to do I can't do, and the things I don't want to do is the things I wind up doing, to the one that says, I don't put myself under any position that I'm under the power of anybody or anything. He's our example of victory. Jesus would be a tough example for victory because he never struggled with his flesh that we see. He became obedient through the things that he suffered, the Bible says. That means there were things that his flesh didn't want to do, but he chose to do because he knew it was the will of God from his heart. But that's a tough example to follow. I don't know about you, but I don't really expect to ever sweat great drops of blood over the struggling with my flesh. It's never happened to me yet. Thank the Lord. But Paul's a great example for us to follow. Because I can relate to his struggle in chapter 7. And in some areas of my life, I can relate to his victory. I'm still working on the other areas. How about you? He's the example for us to follow. Well, what example is there to follow? If so be that we suffer with him, we'll be glorified together with him. Now, what does that mean? Well, the Bible says... If we've been faithful to suffer for him, in other words, put spiritual things first and follow the things of the Spirit, we'll reign with him when he returns. You remember what Jesus said in his prayer to the Father in John chapter 17? He said, Father, I have glorified your name. Now glorify me with the glory that I had before the world was. What is he saying? He's saying, I fulfilled your work, the work that you had for me to do here on the earth. What work did God have for him to do? To glorify his father. What did that entail? Well one day it was walking in love toward the Pharisees. Another day it was correcting the Pharisees. Healing the sick. Multiplying the loaves and the fishes. Saving the woman caught in adultery from being stoned. There's a variety of things. In each and every case he was led by the spirit. Each and every case he was led by the spirit. To manifest the character and the nature of God. So what happened? God glorified him with the glory that he had before the earth. Verse 18, for I reckon. Paul loves the word reckon. It's an accounting term. One translation or many translations translated estimate. But that really doesn't get it across. The word reckon, the root word reckon means to accept to be true. That was an accomplished or established fact. Here's what Paul said. Paul said, I have accepted to be fact that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Now, what glory is he talking about to be revealed in us? He's not talking about the power of God displayed in us in the middle of our trouble. He didn't even mention that. The glory that he's talking about that's going to be revealed in us is when Jesus comes back. For the earnest expectation, verse 19, of the creature, literally creation, the earth, waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. Now, I want you to notice what the earth is waiting for. The earth is not waiting for a political leader. The earth is not waiting for the Pope's enclave on global climate change or whatever. The earth is not waiting for the church to start a new program to reach people. The earth is waiting for one thing. The creation is groaning and travailing for one thing, one event, and that is Jesus coming back to wit, we receive our redeemed bodies. Why? Because the earth was created to be under the control of God's man. 
It's what God created it for. He put everything that he made under the dominion of Adam. That's the way the earth was intended to be. It's what the earth is groaning and travailing for. For the creation was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who has subjected it. Yet there is hope. Best translation that I found says, yet there is hope. In other words, he didn't subject it in hope, as the King James seems to imply, talking about Adam. He subjected it through sin, but there's still hope. Well, what hope is there? The manifestation of the sons of God. Because the creation itself also shall be delivered from bondage of corruption under the glorious liberty of the children of God. What glorious liberty is he talking about? Is he talking about the church operating here on the earth? No, he's talking about when we receive our redeemed bodies and reign with Jesus in the millennium. For we know, verse 22, that the whole creation groaneth. And by the way, the word creatures translated in the previous verses is the same word creation. That's why I was using the word creation. For the, we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. Now, what does that mean? That means that the earth is going through birth pangs, waiting for Jesus to return. That means every tornado and every hurricane is the earth groaning until Jesus comes back. That means every famine and every pestilence, that means every drought is the earth groaning until Jesus comes back. Because that's not the way the earth was intended or created to be uh, to operate. That means every wolf that bows, howls at the moon is groaning, waiting for the earth to come back into line under the control of the people of God. Every lion that roars is the earth groaning. Now, how do we know that? Because the Bible says, Isaiah tells us, that in the millennium, the lion and the lamb will lay down together. It says that the children will be playing over the, the serpent's hole, I think is the way that it speaks of. There's nothing that will hurt. There's nothing that will harm. The earth will be back in order. What is it that brings the earth back in order? Us receiving our redeemed bodies. When does that occur? When Jesus comes back. Folks, that's the, earth, that's the hope, the only hope that the earth recognizes that it has. I'm speaking of the earth as an, as an animate object, as a living thing. In one sense, it is alive because God created it. It's not like it thinks. But that's the hope for the earth. Well, if that's the hope for the earth, shouldn't we place more importance on it for ourselves? That's what Paul mentions. And not only they, verse 23, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit, meaning the redemption of our body. Notice it says that the Holy Ghost enables you, the Holy Ghost on the inside enables you to groan about Jesus coming back. It's talking about a work of the Spirit. For we are saved by hope. What hope is he talking about? Not a hope of heaven, a hope of a redeemed body. We are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man sees, why does he yet hope for? You don't have to hope for what you can see. Well, what can't we see? We can't yet see our redeemed bodies. Now, there are other things that are going to result as, uh, come about as a result of Jesus coming back for us. Our experience in heaven. The time we spend in heaven during the tribulation and so forth, the marriage supper of the Lamb and the other things that take place. There are other benefits and other things that will take place. But Paul is talking about victory over the body. So that's the part that he emphasizes. 
Likewise, verse 26. Oh, I'm sorry, I skipped one. Verse 25. But if we hope for that which we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. Well, that's what we're doing. We're waiting for Jesus to come back. I don't know about you, but I don't like waiting. I want things to happen now. The more we read about the blessings and the benefits of Jesus coming back, the more I want him to come back. That's why you got to be careful about teaching on heaven too much. People will want to go there. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. Now, what is the likewise or in like manner referring to? It refers back to verse 23 where the Spirit, the first fruits of the Spirit enables us to groan waiting for the redemption of our bodies. In the same manner that we groan about our bodies being redeemed, we groan about our infirmities. For what now he identifies the infirmities that he's talking about, which one does he mean? For we know not what to pray for as we ought. Notice it doesn't say that we don't know what to pray for. It says we don't know what to pray for as we ought. In other words, in full measure. So the Holy Spirit helps us in our lack of knowledge about how to pray as we ought. But the Spirit himself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now, folks, Paul has not changed subjects. So praying in the Spirit, the groaning, the help of the Holy Spirit to pray in things that we don't know what to pray for as we ought, which might include overcoming a desire or uh, conquering a desire of our flesh, an action or activity of our flesh. Paul must be talking about the connection between those two things. Or else why is he jumping around talking about something else all of a sudden? No, he's still talking about victory over the flesh. He's still talking about the power of the Holy Spirit that's given to us because we're in Christ Jesus to conquer the desires of our flesh, which will always be the enemy of God. The quicker you realize that your flesh is not your friend and it's not the friend of God, the better off you're going to be. Because your flesh tries to cozy up with you, if you'll let me use that phrase, to get you to side in with it, to get you, the real you, the man on the inside, the man that's in Christ, to side up with it and do what it wants to do. It's not your friend. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now, the Bible says, and Paul taught this uh, in uh, different places, the Bible talks about Jesus making intercession for us by sitting at the right hand of the Father. Intercession refers to a joining together of two parties. So just as Jesus has joined us together with the Father, the Holy Spirit has joined us together, joined our lack of knowledge of what to pray for as we ought with the wisdom and, and, and will and purpose of God to pray effectively. That's what verse 26 is talking about. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Intercession is not a type of prayer that he's talking about here. He's talking about the work of the Holy Ghost to give us utterance to pray for things that we don't know what to pray for. See, many people see the word intercession and the only thing they think of is prayer. Intercession is not prayer. Intercession is position. If I, if I introduce you to somebody, if I know you and I know somebody else, but you don't know the other guy and I introduce you, I've made intercession for you where the other party is concerned. And I didn't pray a lick. Do you understand what he's saying? He's talking about a power of the Holy Ghost to join you together to something you don't know. And he, verse 27, and he that searches the hearts 
knows what is the mind of the Spirit. You might not, but he does. Because he, the Holy Spirit, makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. What intercession is he talking about? The groanings that he referred to in verse 26. The groanings are the intercession. The utterance in other tongues is the intercession. The Holy Ghost is the positioner. He's the one that gives you. He's the one that knows what you ought to pray for as you ought. He's the one that knows the will of the Father. And so he gives you utterance to pray. Again, the intercession is position. It's not prayer. And we know, verse 28, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are called according to his purpose. There's two ways you can look at the verse. Verse 28 can be looked at as separate and standalone without any relationship or context to the preceding verses. If that's true, which most of the church world seems to think, if that's true, then that means whatever happened is the purpose and plan of God. That means tragedy and sickness can be the purpose and the plan of God. That means death of a loved one or a child can be the purpose and the plan of God. The problem with that is that Jesus said that the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. Now, Jesus did not say, that's John 10.10. Jesus did not say the thief comes to kill and steal and destroy unless it's the purpose of God and then God's behind it. Now, Jesus makes a blanket statement that the thief is the one that's killing and stealing and destroying. So it's impossible to get a clear and accurate picture of the character and the nature of God according to what Jesus told us about him. If you take verse 28 and pull it out of its setting and let it stand and and represent some major overriding principle that just covers the sovereignty of God and so forth. You do that and you'll be hopelessly confused about who God is and what God does in the earth. The second option is that verse 28 is connected with verses 26 and 27 where the Holy Ghost gives us utterance to pray in other tongues or groanings. And that word groanings just simply means God talk. It's talking about supernatural utterance in other tongues that he gives to those that are filled with the Spirit, which everybody can be, every Christian can be, praying according to the perfect will of the Father in verse 27. In other words, if verses 27, 26, 27, and 28 are together, and Paul wasn't just jumping around in a schizophrenic manner, then it means that when the Holy Ghost gives us utterance to pray for things that we don't know what to pray for, we can know that we're praying the perfect will of the Father, and then things work out together for good according to his purpose because you just prayed his purpose and his will. Now, those are the only two possibilities. It either is connected to what the Holy Ghost is, uh, the work of the Holy Ghost in verses 26 and 27, or it is not. No middle ground. It's got to be one way or the other. Well, if Paul was led by the Holy Ghost, then these things have to be connected. So therefore, after we pray in the Holy Ghost, verse 28, we know that all things work together for good to them that love God and that are the called according to his purpose. Why? Because we just prayed according to the purpose of God. The word purpose means to bend the will to something, a definite action that you bend your will to. How do we bend our will to the purpose of God? One way is to pray in other tongues. Because we don't know what we're praying. We don't know what we're praying about. We don't know everything about the situation. that We, we may even know what we're praying for, just not know how we're praying about it. But we're yielding to the utterance of the Holy Ghost to pray according to God's will. 4, verse 29, for whom he did foreknow, 
He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. What's it saying? It said, God knew you before you knew him. And God planned before you ever had a thought to be conformed to the image of Jesus. That's why he planned for Jesus to come to the earth. That's why the Bible says Jesus was slain from the foundations of the earth. God planned for all of mankind to be in Christ and free from condemnation of sin and victorious over the flesh. He didn't plan that for a few Christians, few lucky ones. He planned that for everybody. Now, will everybody take advantage of that and participate in that, partake of it? No. But why don't they? If God predestinated everybody to be conformed to the image of his son, why then will not everybody be saved? Because it's not up to God's predestination. It's up to man's choice. God predestined for everybody to have the opportunity to make Jesus the Lord of their lives, but their decisions govern it, not God's wants or his plan. Are you out there? Folks, you've got to remember, Paul's writing a letter. He's not writing three or four or five different doctrines with a verse apiece. These are not standalone doctrines that are supposed to be taken out of context. The reason that God wants everybody to be able to pray in the, in the spirit of God, pray according to his plan and his purpose, is because he wants everything to work out for good for everybody. Now, what does that mean? That means he wants you to win in every case. Why? Because the power of the Holy Spirit within us is infinite. God doesn't win some and lose some. When God's involved, he always wins. That's why through the Holy Spirit, we're supposed to get him involved. So that he can win through us. Moreover, verse 30, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. Now, who is called? Which ones are called? See, the idea is that God's sovereign, and so God's picking and choosing who he wants to be in his family. Who's called? The same ones that were foreknown. Who's called? The same ones that were predestined. Who's called? Everybody's called. That's why the Bible says Jesus died for the sins of the world, not the sins of the lucky. Well, that's what the church world teaches, isn't it? Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. Who is justified by the blood of Jesus? Everybody. Who receives that justification? The ones that make him the Lord of their lives. Who decides whether or not they make him the Lord of their lives? They do. Well, no, no, Pastor Mike, God's sovereign. God has to be the one picking and choosing. Well, then why does the Bible say it's the will of God for every man to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth? If it's God's will for everybody to be saved, why isn't everybody saved? Because of man's choice. Because man's choice governs. Not the desire of God, not even the will of God. God uh, exhibited his will when he sent Jesus to die for all of mankind. Man exhibits his will and choice, free will and choice, by accepting what God has done. Moreover, them who he called, he predestinated, he, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, them who he justified, he also glorified. That means the glorification that Paul is talking about, specifically the receiving of the redeemed body, belongs to every human being on the earth. All they have to do is accept Jesus' sacrifice as their own. Verse 31. 
Here's the end. Here's the climax. I know I'm over time, so let me run through these real quick. Here's the climax. What then shall we say to these things? What things is he talking about? Isn't all this the the response to the struggle that he has in the flesh? In chapter 7? Isn't he talking about what do we conclude about these things in the, the Spirit of God, the power of the Holy Spirit within us to walk in victory and the power of the Holy Spirit to pray the perfect will of the Father and things that we don't even know what to pray for as we ought so that God works everything out for our good? What then shall we say to these things? What about the struggle that we have in the flesh? If literally since God be for us, who can be against us? In the literal uh, translation of this verse, it says, since God for us, who against us? Now, folks, remember, the picture is God is the supreme judge of the universe. He's already declared he's on your side in the case. So who, who is it exactly that's standing against us? Well, of course, the answer is the devil. He used circumstances to do it. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Real quickly, I want you to think about what it means that God delivered Jesus up for us all. What does that mean? That means he delivered him up to the torment of the devil. It means he delivered him up to the torments of hell. It means he delivered him up and made him available to suffer every imaginable penalty that there is and a lot more than we can't even conceive of. God didn't withhold one moment of Jesus offering a true and righteous sacrifice. God didn't cut the corner and say, well, we'll just say that's good enough. That's the point that Paul is making. Paul sees the crucifixion of Jesus, but the time spent in hell as well. He sees the death, the spiritual death of Jesus and the separation from God that Jesus agonized over in the Garden of Gethsemane when he sweat great drops of blood. And Paul is saying as clearly and as simply as he can, since God didn't spare Jesus from that, Because that was necessary for there to be no condemnation for you. That was necessary to break your history in Adam. That was necessary to break your history or connection, relationship with sin and the law. Since God didn't spare Jesus from any of that but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? In other words, he's saying if God wasn't willing to to cut the corners on Jesus and the sacrifice that was necessary for your relationship with sin and death to be broken... Where do you think God's going to cut a corner? What would God say no to to help you since he did that to be on your side? Interesting thought, huh? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It's God that justifies. The emphasis is on God as the supreme judge of the universe. Now, who does lay a charge to the elect of God? Well, that's what the devil's job is. He's the accuser of the brethren. But he's trying to reopen a case that's already been settled. He's trying to retry a case that the sentence has already been passed and executed. And that's what Paul is saying. Why should we listen to the devil who tries to accuse us when God has already justified us? When God has already made the determination, the eternal determination about our guilt? He wiped it away. He said not guilty. So who's going to say otherwise? Do you see the point he's making? And do you see why he's making it? Now, why would Paul know about these things? Because of the guilt and condemnation he experienced when he was unable to overcome his flesh in chapter 7. He's right where we were. Maybe where we are. 
Who is he that condemneth? It's Christ that died, yea, rather than that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. In other words, who's going to bring condemnation when God has already decreed that there is no condemnation? Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father as proof that there is no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. So why should we listen to the devil's condemnation? Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Now, folks, I would submit something to you, and that is Paul has experienced every one of those things in verse 35. He's found this out for sure. He's going to tell us about it in another verse or two. Who's going to separate us from the love of Christ? If we're not separated from the love of Christ, if we allow ourselves to be led by the Spirit into doing the things of God and doing the will of God in our lives, it's impossible to be defeated. So who's going to separate us from the love of Christ? As long as we're staying in the love of Christ, which means we're in Christ. As long as we stay in Christ, it's impossible for the devil to utilize anything or everything to defeat us if we use the power of the Spirit to overcome. Now, that's the key. Most Christians don't know there is a power of the Spirit to overcome. That's why they're praying for God to do something from the outside. He goes on and says in verse, 30, or verse 36, For thy sake, even as it is written in the Old Testament, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Paul has experienced this firsthand in his life. He doesn't know if from one day to the next if this is my last day. Because of the trouble that he stirred up politically with the Jews and in other manners, just preaching Jesus and him crucified. Paul has faced death time after time after time. He never knows what tomorrow is going to bring. He doesn't know if tomorrow is another jail sentence. He doesn't know if tomorrow is another beating. He doesn't know what's going to happen tomorrow. He has turned out to be ready for anything at any time. And so he says, this scripture describes us, not just me, but describes us, Paul says. We're like sheep waiting for the slaughter. There's trouble in the world. But notice he says, concludes in verse 37, nay, in all these things. In tribulation, which means trouble, or distress, which means anguish. Persecution, which means being followed after or pursued. Or famine, doing without, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. In all these things, we're more than conquerors. Notice what he says. He says, we look like sheep waiting for the slaughter, but we're really more than conquerors. Now, you couldn't say that unless you knew about the power of the Spirit within you. And that's what he discovered. Nay, in all these things, we're more than conquerors through him that loved us. What does that mean? That means we have the infinite power of God. That means the power of God is available for whatever conflict you're in or whatever conflict may arise. That means you will have that capacity, the potential to win every time if you allow the Holy Spirit to lead you and, and order your steps. That means there's nothing the devil can do. There's no power that he's got that's greater than the Holy Spirit that's already inside you. For I am persuaded. Notice verse 38. Persuaded is a heart word. Paul's not saying I've accepted this mentally. He said I'm persuaded. I don't just know this with my head. I've proven this out in my life. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life 
nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. How is he persuaded? Because all of those things are things that Jesus conquered when he went to the cross and was raised from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He went into the depths of the earth. He conquered principalities and powers. Now, there's arguments in theological circles about principalities and powers. Does that mean governmental powers or does it mean demon powers? Some say that one word means one thing and the other word means the other and somebody else will say just the opposite. To me, it doesn't really matter because the governmental powers that are in play here on the earth are a part of the spirit of the world which Satan is the god of. So either way, it's demonic powers. It's evil spirits. And Jesus conquered those two. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life Not only did he conquer death, he conquered life. Sometimes life is harder than death, folks. Paul talks about in one place that that we despaired of life. He didn't say we despaired of death. We were afraid of dying. He said we despaired of life. We were afraid we were going to have to live through this. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come. The devil always wants to hit you with things that are going to come down the road nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What does that mean? That means if you're not separated from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, that means you win. And all you have to do is rely on the power of the Holy Ghost to get you through. Notice how Paul goes from the end of chapter 7 to, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death, to being more than a conqueror in chapter 8. How? Because he found out what it means for Christ to live in him. He found out what it means to have the power of the Holy Spirit within. And you can too. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that your word is true. Thank you for the privilege that we have to walk in the spirit. Thank you, Father, that it's not a hard or a grievous thing. And we thank you, Holy Spirit, that you, because you are the spirit of truth, and you guide us into all truth, we thank you that you lead us into victory in every aspect of our lives. Satan... We serve notice on you. We're finding out what Paul discovered. We refuse to be dominated by anything in our lives. We refuse to allow our spirits to be dominated by our flesh. We refuse to allow ourselves to be brought under the power of anything, anyone, or any circumstance. Because we have the victory. We are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us and gave himself for us. For it's in his wonderful name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Forgive me for going over time, but I couldn't stop in the middle.